Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you would, please take out your Bibles now and turn in them in the New Testament to the book of Acts and chapter number four in Acts. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible in the back part, turn to page 94, and you would be right at Acts chapter four. I want you to go back to your childhood for a moment in your mind. You know, when we're all, all of us, when we were kids, we enjoyed pretending. It's just part of what you do as a kid. And usually when we're pretending, we were pretending to be someone. Who did you pretend to be when you were a kid? One of the things that I remember that made such an impact on me was when I was 11 and 12 years old, there was a television show on in the United States. The name of it was Combat. It was a story about a squad of American infantrymen, if I can say that properly, uh, they were in France fighting the Germans, and leading the squad was Sergeant Saunders, who was played by Vic Morrow, and Lieutenant Hanley, who was played by Rick Jason. And I just loved my friends. We loved to just imitate and pretend we were part of that group in Germany, and we, we had this large drainage ditch out behind my house, and we would have our helmets and our guns, and I just loved to pretend that I was Sergeant Saunders, the, the sergeant. You know, my dad had been a sergeant in the infantry, and we would just get out there and play with guns and have a great old time like we were in the army. But, you know, we obviously weren't, and pretending is an okay thing to do when you're a kid. But when pretending begins to infiltrate the church, it has the potential to cause great spiritual damage. And we see today in the book of Acts, the church's first pretenders. We've been involved in a series of messages on the first part of the book of Acts that we've entitled Seeds. And the title I've given to today's message is this, The Gospel Opposed, Part 2. We had Part 1 last week where we looked at how the flesh opposes, or rather the world opposes the gospel. Today we're going to look at Satan and the flesh opposing the gospel. Now here's today's plan. It's going to be simple. We're only going to do two things. Number one, we're going to do a flyover chapter 4, verse 32, through chapter 5, verse 42. And we're literally going to do that. We're going to just fly over it. We're going to be flying through it. So I want you to hold onto your hat as we do that for the next few moments together. And then we're going to draw together three key clarifications from that section of Scripture that we're going to fly over. It's going to get a little windy. We're going to move with speed. So if you're ready, let's start the fly over. And it begins with the generosity of the early church in chapter 4, verse 32 to verse 37. And if you let your eyes go to verse 32, it mentions the congregation of those who believed. Now, we want to stop right there because when we think about the congregation that's going to be described here, we might be thinking of a very small group of people. Uh, was this 100 people or what? 
Well, if you remember the flow of the book of Acts, the original group from chapter 1 was probably a group of about 30 people. And then in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, and you will remember that in chapter 2, verse 41, 3,000 people trusted in Christ. And then in chapter 4, verse 4, we have 5,000 men who are added to the congregation. And if you include some of their wives and their kids, we actually can get a number that was maybe 20,000 plus people. So as we read through this, don't be just thinking about some little group and some little house in a corner. You know, in a population of a city of, of Jerusalem size, some 50,000 people, 20,000 people is a significant subgroup. And it says in verse 32 that the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. Amazing. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. We would have to agree that there was a great sense of spiritual family that marked this group of believers. But as we look at these verses, here's the question we need to ask. Is this being set forth as the pattern for all churches for all time? There are some people who would say, well, if it happened in the book of Acts, it should be happening in every single church. So we want to address that question for just a moment. Is this to be the pattern for all churches? And I just want to make a couple of observations in that regard. This idea of sharing the way that they shared, interestingly enough, is only mentioned in the church at Jerusalem. We don't see this being practiced in other churches later on in the New Testament and later on in the book of Acts. It is never commanded that we are to do this in this way. In fact, we learn from chapter 5 and verse 4 that this was a voluntary thing in the church. No one had to sell anything. And even if they sold things, they did not have to give it to the church. It wasn't a requirement at all. In fact, as we see the New Testament unfolding, the expected norm for an individual believer is laid out for us. And that individual expected norm is that we should provide for our own needs through honest work. And we won't go there, but you can look at the passages uh, later. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 uh, give us that expected norm. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 to 12 also discusses that. That is the expected norm that we provide for our own needs through honest work. Well, you say, well, what's going on here? Well, this was a very difficult economic situation in Jerusalem. And even as we heard mentioned on the video earlier, there comes a point when there has to be an offering collected from people outside the region to help to give economic relief to those in Jerusalem. What they were really doing here was practicing the principle of bearing one another's burdens, and they were great. Well, then in verse 36, we have an example of, of what actually happened. We have 
Joseph, who was a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, he owned a tract of land and he sold it and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. So we have an actual illustration of an individual whose name was Joseph. And we're gonna see Joseph appearing further on into our study of the book of Acts. But he was a guy whose birth name was Joseph, but the apostles had given him a nickname, which was Barnabas, which being translated means son of encouragement. It was a common thing in that culture. If someone wanted to highlight a character trait that someone displayed, they would call them the son of, and then they would fill in the blank. You know, we do something very similar to that uh, when we might use the phrase Mr. Nice Guy or, you know, Miss Grumpy or whatever, and we're trying to just highlight by giving a little nickname to someone for the behavior or the character that they have. So this guy got that nickname, and and we're going to see that whenever we see him in the book of Acts, Joseph, whose nickname was Barnabas, is encouraging and helping people. Now, again, we're just flying over all of this. That brings us next to the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. This is where we see the pretenders stepping forth, where we see the opposition to the gospel ratcheting up. We first saw it from the world. Now we're going to see it from Satan and the flesh. And I want to read the first 11 verses of chapter 5, invite you to follow along as I'm reading. It says, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and they kept back some of the price for themselves. And he did this, Ananias, with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last And great fear came over all who heard of it. And the young men got up and covered him up. And after carrying Ananias out, they buried him. Now there elapsed, verse 7, an interval of about three hours. And his wife, Sapphira, came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. And then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell dead at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in, they had been burying her husband and found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband and great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Now, what in the world was going on here? Well, I want to remind you that at this point, the church was a newborn. And what do you do with a newborn? Very important with a newborn that you protect them. And God knew that hypocrisy and religiosity could be a fatal virus 
to the newborn church. What really happened on the part of Ananias and Sapphira is they had done a very premeditated and prideful thing. They knew people like Joseph or Barnabas were selling their land and bringing it all. They decided to pretend they sold land, but they were going to pretend that they brought it all. Uh, They wanted the full glory uh, at a bargain price. And several interesting things happen in this section. In verse 3, Peter says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? He's talking about how Satan had brought a temptation to Ananias' heart and mind. And, you know, Jesus talked about Satan. He said that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. The one who invented lying was Satan himself. And he says, why has Satan filled your heart? An interesting phrase, to lie to the Holy Spirit. You know, there are people in the Christian community out there at large who when you talk about the Holy Spirit, they view the Holy Spirit as some sort of a vague force that exists. But the Holy Spirit is presented to us in the New Testament as a person. And only a person can be lied to. And we're going to see in Acts chapter 5, verse 9, that the Holy Spirit is being tested by somebody. In Acts chapter 8, verse 29, the Holy Spirit gives orders to people. In Acts chapter 10, verse 19, the Holy Spirit speaks to people. In Acts chapter 16, verse 7, the Holy Spirit refuses permission to somebody. Those are all marks of a person. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is a person, not a force. And of course, the Holy Spirit is God. So as those words, verse 5, come out of Peter's mouth, Ananias falls down dead. Now, now Peter didn't do that. God just stops Ananias breathing right then and there. And then three hours later, in verses 7 and 8, his wife shows up, and she has an opportunity to come clean. Peter asks her. She carries on the lie and the deception. And then Peter says to her, interesting phrase in verse 9, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? How do you put God to the test? Could it be that you do that and I do that? What does it really mean? Well, I think the picture is they sought to see how much they could get away with. And that is putting God to the test. And immediately, she is dead. You know, we have people running around in the community of Christians at large And they like to talk about people being slain by the Spirit. I don't know if you've ever heard that or not. But this was the real McCoy right here. They were really slain by the Spirit. And I I get a kick out of verse 11. It's such an understatement. And great fear came over the whole church. My goodness, wouldn't that be true? You know, in Deuteronomy 21, when God introduced the death penalty... Part of the design of the death penalty was to be a deterrent. And that's part of what's involved here in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. Part of God's design is for it to be a deterrent. We're going to look at that more later when we look at some of the clarifications. By the way, one interesting fact in verse 11, 
Great fear came over the whole church. This is the very first appearance of the word church in the book of Acts. And we're going to see it showing up more and more, some 16 times more, as the church begins to continue to grow and form. Now, again, we're flying over all this. We're moving quickly. That brings us to the apostles' fruitful ministry in chapter 5, verses 12 to 16. Look at verse 12. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among all the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. Verse 15, they were healing and and doing these miracles to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. And the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. And we've talked some about this. What's going on in this section? Well, the apostles were presenting their credentials that they had been sent by God. Remember we talked a little bit about this? At the onset of the era of law in the Old Testament, Moses and Joshua performed a lot of miracles. Early in the era of the prophets in the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha performed a lot of miracles. And at the launch of the gospel era, we have the apostles and their associates performing a lot of miracles. They are displaying and presenting their credentials. Now, did you notice what the phrase says at the end of verse 16? They were all being healed. When the apostles and their associates were presenting their credentials Everyone was being healed. There were no misfires. There were no failures. There were no exceptions. And a lot of times people look at that and they say, why don't we have these kind of physical miracles today? We ought to be experiencing these same kinds of things. Well, remember, this is part of the credentialing of the apostles. But also remember, and we talked about this, that Jesus said there are greater miracles than what he had done that we will do. What was he referring to? Well, remember, a physical healing was a temporal event, but a spiritual healing is an eternal event. And a transformed heart before God is the greatest miracle that has ever been performed on the face of this planet with human beings. It reflects the deepest need that we have as human beings. It has the most enduring impact You know, healing is only good for the rest of your life. But a transformed heart has impact for all of eternity. And by the way, a transformed heart, the greatest miracle, comes at the greatest cost of all, and that was the blood of Christ for us. And I say all that just to, to remind ourselves that in a sense, I don't know if you ever think about this, but it's true, in a sense we're all miracle workers we all have an opportunity as we pass the gospel message on to people to participate in an eternal event of a spiritual healing and seeing a transformed heart, the greatest miracle of all. Now again, we're we're flying over all this as quickly as we can. The next section we come to is the intensified opposition in chapter 5, verses 17 to 42. And it begins with an arrest in verses 17 and 18. Notice the high priest 
steps up along with his associates. Remember, these many of his associates were of the sect of the Sadducees, and it says they were filled with jealousy. I mean, think about it. It had only been weeks, and there's 20,000 followers of Jesus Christ in this new thing called the church, and they're just completely jealous of all of this. And so they lay hands, verse 18, on the apostles. And in this case, it wasn't just Peter and John. It was all 12 of them that they rounded up. And the next thing is we see their release in verses 19 to 26. Now, when I read verses 19 to 26, I I, I very clearly see a picture that God has a sense of humor. I don't know if you ever feel that way, but he does. God has a sense of humor. So they put them in this public jail, verse 18, and during the night, an angel of the Lord opens the gates of the prison and takes them out. Now, you will remember that an angel is a spirit being created by God to carry out his will and his work. But here's where the humor comes in. Remember the Sadducees? Remember what they did not believe in? They did not believe in the supernatural. They did not believe in supernatural beings. They did not believe in angels. And so what God does is he sends an angel. There's just irony there. They put them in public jail, and the angel releases them. And the angel says, we want you to go speak to the people in the temple. And so they go to the temple about daybreak, and they begin to teach the people there. And then the high priest and his associates come together in verse 21. They call the Sanhedrin together and all the Senate of the sons of Israel. And they said, now go out to the prison house and get those guys we put in there. So the officers go and they do not find them in the prison. They come back and they say, we didn't find anybody there. The prison house was locked. It was totally secure. The guards were standing at the doors. But when we had the thing opened up, we couldn't find anybody inside. And when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard that, they were greatly perplexed. What in the world happened here? And then I really enjoy the the humor of the Lord. While they're perplexed about this, verse 25, somebody, it's probably a regular person, came in and said to them, hey, 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 the men you put in prison, they're standing in the temple and they're teaching the people which leads us then to the confrontation in verses 27 to 33. So they go and they bring the 12 apostles and they stood them, verse 27, before the Sanhedrin and the high priest questioned them. Notice he says, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, there's two things I want to note here that impressed me. First one, remember we talked about how the world suppresses the truth in unrighteousness? And do you see that going on again right here? I mean, think about what had happened. There had been this Houdini act. They had just disappeared out of the jail. It was still all locked up. And you, they're not interested in truth. The high priest isn't interested in truth. He never says to them, hey, guys, how did you pull that one off? Because I really want to get down to the truth of the matter. He's really, again, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Second thing I notice is he says, 
you have been teaching in this name and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. I mean, he doesn't even, he doesn't even want to say the name of Jesus. He doesn't even want to acknowledge that Jesus of Nazareth exists at all. While Peter's response to all this is to really say the same thing he said to them before. Jesus was the Messiah. You had the Messiah crucified and he is raised from the dead and we're going to tell everyone about him. And then that brings their response, verse 33. When they heard that, this is very graphically and, and, and beautifully communicated in the original language, they were cut to the quick, it says in the New American Standard, and intended to kill them. That little phrase, they were cut to the quick, uh, really means that uh, they were sawn through. They were sawn in two. The picture is their anger was fully cut open. They were completely furious. There was outright rage pouring out of them, and they intended to kill the apostles. You know, these are the religious authorities. What a loving spiritual reaction to have. You know, not let's discuss the truth, let's find out the truth. You're not going to do it our way. We are going to kill you. Which then leads us to the cautious counsel in verses 34 to 40. What happens is, as part of the Sanhedrin, there was a Pharisee, and some Pharisees were part of the Sanhedrin, named Gamaliel. He was a teacher of the law, respected by the people, and he stands up. And he says to the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, take care what you propose we do. And then he goes back in history, recent history. He says, you know, there was this guy named Theudas who rose up, and he claimed to be somebody significant spiritually, and there was about 400 guys following him, but he was killed, and everyone who followed him was dispersed. They came to nothing. And not only that, but there was another guy named Judas of Galilee who rose up in the days of the census, and, and he drew away some people after him, and he perished, and everyone who followed him were scattered out. So I'm just gonna say to you, let's not deal with these guys in this way. Let's let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you could even be found fighting against God. Now, a lot of times when people see the reaction of Gamaliel, they think, what a wonderful guy. What a spiritual dude he was. But I'm not very impressed with him at all for several reasons. Number one, do you notice that Gamaliel here throws Jesus into the wacky leader category? He's saying, guys, you remember we had these wacky guys who were making kind of claims and they had a little following and then they died and then everything disappeared. Well, Jesus, he's implying, is another one of those guys. What is Gamaliel really doing when he does that? He is completely rejecting all the signs of the Messiah that Jesus had displayed. He is completely rejecting the fact, the historical fact, that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. He's basically giving to the council here a wait-and-see piece of advice. Second thing I want to note about that is that was spiritually fatal advice. You remember what Peter had said to them that was so necessary for them? What did he say? Repent so that your sins could be wiped away. That's what they needed 
to do. And yet he gives this, ah, let's just wait and see advice. The third thing that I don't really agree with Gamaliel's response has to do with this fact where he says, you know, it won't grow if God's not in it. Let's just see what happens. You know, in in church history, that's just not been true. You look at the, the growth of Islam. You look at the growth of cults. This idea that it won't grow if God is not in it is just not a true principle at all. So you say, well, what was going on here? Well, what was going on here is God's providence was at work. God was sovereignly using Gamaliel to preserve the apostles' lives at this point in the history of the church. Well, then notice that we have uh, the response, really, uh, of the disciples. Um, They end up in verse 40, or actually the response of the council. Uh, They take his advice, and after calling the apostles in, verse 40, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they released them. Now, you know, it's interesting how when we read the Bible, we read something like that and say, okay, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak about Jesus anymore. This is not an insignificant little event when it says they flogged them. That means they got each one of them, the 12, 39 lashes with a triple strap whip. And in Deuteronomy, it talks about flogging people, and it says that that needed to be limited to 40 strikes. And the Pharisees, who always wanted to be careful about not overstepping any detail, they would just say, well, let's do 39. That way, if we miscount one, we're not going to break the word of God. And so they get 39 lashes with a triple strap whip, 13 on the chest, 26 on the back. Now look, the next thing we want to see is the disciples' heart in all this, verses 41 and 42. Notice their overall response in verse 42 is that every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ as the Messiah. But what's really interesting to me is verse 41. They are flogged in order not to speak in the name of Jesus. Verse 41 says, so they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. That's pretty surprising after you've gotten 39 lashes with a triple strap whip. And that leads us to the first of the three clarifications we want to make. We've flown over all this. Let's go back and make three clarifications. First clarification relates to suffering for Jesus. They were rejoicing because they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Why was that the response? We got to be whipped, and we're rejoicing about that. Well, let's look at what the Bible has to say about that. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, had taught his disciples this. He said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you falsely. They say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Notice verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward in heaven is great. 
In the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In Luke 6, 23, Jesus said to the disciples, when this happens, be glad and leap for joy. Start leaping around with joyous excitement. And Paul picked up on this principle in, in Philippians 1.29 when he said to the believers there, it has been granted to you, it's a privilege to suffer for his sake. You might remember the man Richard Wormbrand. Uh, Richard Wormbrand was a pastor in Romania in the Soviet era. Uh, he wrote the book Tortured for Christ. He founded the organization The Voice of the Martyrs. But he actually described this kind of joy in his own life. At one point when he was in a Romanian prison, his tormentors ripped chunks of flesh out of him. And of course, he had the scars to prove that. He was sentenced to solitary confinement, and for weeks, even months on end, no one would speak to him in his tiny cell. Amazingly, doing all of that, there were times when he was overcome with joy. He would actually stand up in his weakened state and dance around his cell, confident that the angels were dancing with him. He believed what Jesus had said. Count it for joy. Leap for joy because your reward in heaven is going to be great. Now, it's important to clarify something here. He's talking about suffering because of our stand for the gospel. He's talking about suffering because we name the name of Christ. He's not talking about suffering that comes on us because of our poor choices. Peter addresses this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 16. I'll just read it to you. Here's what he says. He says to the believers, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad. For these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. Your reward in heaven is going to be great. He says, if you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed for the glorious spirit of God rests upon you. However, he clarifies this point, if you suffer, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs. It's not because of your poor choices. But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. So that's the first key clarification we want to do. The second one, second key clarification relates to the subject matter of civil disobedience. And we have that in chapter 5, verse 29. Remember that Peter and the apostles, when they're told to be quiet about Jesus, they said, we must obey God rather than men. And over the years, I've heard people quote that verse justifying certain behaviors that they've chosen to have. So the question is, when as a believer am I justified in breaking the law? That's an important question because if, if you have 4,000 people breaking the law or 4 million pe people breaking the law, you just have anarchy. So when is it justified that a believer can break the law? Well, let's look at what the Bible has to say about this. And here's the core guideline from the Bible for believers. We are to submit to the government authorities. 
I want to show you a few passages that stress that. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. And remember, this was written by Paul in the latter part of the reign of Nero, who was actually in the process of persecuting Christians. And Paul says to to you and to me, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. God's the one who puts them in their place. It's true of our president. It's true of our Congress. Those who exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority is actually opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, it's very easy sometimes for us to make poor choices and try to justify it by saying, well, I have to follow what God says rather than what men say. Sometimes people employ civil disobedience just to get what they want. Peter, again, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 16, says this, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors, for such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. What are we to do? Act as free men, but do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. So the core guideline of the New Testament for you and for me is to submit to the governing authorities. Well, what was going on in Acts chapter 5, verse 29? It is the exception that exists to that core guideline. And the exception is we are to submit to the governing authorities except for when it contradicts a clear, direct command of God. God had said to them, you need to continue to teach about Jesus and his resurrection. And the governing authorities said, keep your mouths closed. And so they obeyed God rather than men. In other words, we are to obey until doing so clearly is a sin. And I will have you notice this, that even though they chose to disobey the governing authorities, they did not resist being arrested for it. And they willingly took the flogging that was delivered upon them. So as I said, there's three things we want to clarify as we've flown over all this. The third clarification is this. What is the lesson of Ananias and Sapphira? I mean, why is this here? What are we supposed to learn from these events with Ananias and Sapphira? Let's just take a moment to think about that. Well, I think when you, when you talk about a lesson from that, one lesson that, that is clear is, is that it's not telling us that we need to be perfect, that we have no weaknesses and we have no failures. It's not telling us that. And if I could be fully transparent before you, I would say this. The truth is that God could have dropped me several times dead this past week for the sinful and deceitful thoughts and actions that I had. And the same thing, no doubt, is true of you. Uh, He could have dropped you several times this past week. I mean, if this was the norm in the church, we... We would have a morgue in every church, and eventually there would be no one left to carry out the next person to the morgue, right? That would be unbelievable to think about that. So what is really going on here? What are we supposed to learn? Well, remember, again, the church was a newborn, and God was seeking to protect the newborn church. 
And God wanted to warn the newborn church. And remember what they had done, Ananias and Sapphira? They were making deliberate, planned out choices. They were making deliberate choices to be a pretender. They were making deliberate choices to appear to be something that they are not. I knew a pastor who often when he would teach, would teach the importance of the believers in the church to give regularly to God and to give sacrificially to God. He taught that on a regular basis, but he virtually never gave anything himself. And God frowns deeply on deception in the church. God frowns deeply on hypocrisy in the church. I mean, think of of the first Christian burial was two hypocrites. Jordan McDonald gives an interesting definition of hypocrisy. He says this, hypocrisy is the desire to look better than you are. It is the hiding of things you do because you're not supposed to do them. It is the hiding of things because you would be ashamed to have them known where you are known. Hypocrisy is, the doing, hypocrisy is the doing of these things, and they are foul, but the hiding of them in order to appear better than you are is fouler still. And really what was fueling what was going on with Ananias and Sapphira was pride and arrogance, wasn't it? And pride and arrogance is something that God hates. And pride is something that Wearsby says opens the door for every other sin in our life. I find it interesting when he says to her in verse 9 that together you put the Spirit of the Lord to the test. What does he really mean? You decided to see how much you could get away with. Could it be that we do a similar thing? Where we put God to the test, we see how much we can get away with in our dating life. We put God to the test, we see how much we can get away with with our taxes. We put God to the test. We see how much we can get away with in the times when no one else physically can see us, but God does. They were doing things for the applause and the acclaim. And when we do things, this is the message from God, for the applause and the acclaim, they can be a fatal spiritual error in our life. You know what the startling thing is to me? Is that God shows mercy that we don't just all stop breathing immediately. Aren't you glad that God shows mercy, but he does want us to heed the warning of Ananias and Sapphira. This is a reminder, men and women, of the seriousness of our sinful choices. It's a reminder that we're to lay aside falsehood from our life and we are to speak truth to one another. Now, as you know, we always like to wrap things up. We talk about some life response. What should I do today, tomorrow, this week? Well, here's the life response for each one of us. We need to be honest with ourselves, and we need to be honest with God, and we need to be honest with one another. You know, King David knew something about what it meant to practice some deception in your life and then to reap the consequences from it. And he wrote this in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. He said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. That would be a great prayer for us this week. 
just to openly go before God and say, am I truthful? Do I exaggerate so that I look good? Have I actually somehow, God, allowed myself to live a deceptive double life? Nothing destroys the testimony of the church faster than hypocritical Christians. Let's pray together. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and we're going to sing a closing song together. Father, we would pray that we would be like David. We would be bold enough to take these verses before you and ask you to search us and to show if there's any hurtful way in us and the way we're living our life. Open eyes to any deception we may have, we pray. And we want to give you thanks. We have as many weaknesses as Ananias and Sapphira, but we are grateful that Jesus paid it all. And even though we don't deserve it, he paid the price for our sins, our failures, our shortcomings, and we just praise you for that. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.